So, Ruth, Romans 8, please. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subject to, to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Awesome. Thank you. So, I've been given this topic of green Christianity as we're thinking about bits that we might need to think more deeply about as we interact with modern issues. Now, obviously, environmentalism and climate change and pollution are pretty important challenges to us today. Just recent stories in the papers, we, we get the idea that the, the world is going to warm by at least two degrees in the foreseeable future. It, it doesn't sound like much, but to a scientist, it's a pretty horrifying number. Uh, we, we've got unusually strong weather events at the moment which are associated with that. We've got limited oil reserves. We've got nitrogen oxide pollution, preventing bees from pollinating. Uh, again, that sounds like a small thing. To a scientist, that's a pretty terrifying story. And, and those are just a few stories from the last few weeks. So. We need to think through, what do Christians say to those? How much should it matter to us? Should we involve ourselves in these questions, or is our energy better spent elsewhere? From the passage that Ruth just read in Romans 8, we, we've got the idea that we live in a fallen, in some senses broken world, a world where creation groans and is frustrated and yearns for liberation. How does that affect the way that we as Christians think about the environment? The way that we talk to our neighbours, our friends about it? I'm not this evening going to try and talk through individual green issues. I don't have the expertise on that. I will try to make sure that there's time later for discussion, discussion, so you can share on the tables your ideas, your responses, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or if I've missed a big idea out. What I do want to do, though, is try to look at the underlying set of ideas about our environment from the Bible. Try and get at the beginnings, at least, of a theology of our place in creation. Because if we can get that straight, then hopefully it'll let us work out our responses to individual concerns. So, again, if you're visiting and you're not a believer, or if you're not sure how you stand with respect to Christianity, um, be aware this will be a slightly different session. Ultimately, though, what we're going to be looking at is knowing how, who, how knowing who Jesus is defines the way that we look at the world. And that's, that's pretty big stuff. So if it leaves you with questions or it annoys you, then, then feel free to chat to, to me or Andy or Dan or Pat or, or whoever you came here with afterwards. It's, it's worth looking into. I do want to make two caveats, though, uh, before I start off. Um, I need to make it clear I'm not an expert in these areas. I am, by day, a mild-mannered physics teacher. I'm not a high-powered academic in environmental science. I'm not a theologian. I'm, and to boot, I'm a fairly normal, lazy Briton. So what I mean by that is that while in theory I support all kinds of green ideas, my loyalty to those issues is much too quickly challenged by even minor inconvenience. So, you know, recycling is all very well, until it means going to the effort of sorting out my rubbish, or of making two separate trips down to the bins. Uh, I'm supported there by a wife who's much better than me, um, as in most sermons. Uh, so first caveat, I I'm not going to claim to be a champion of environmental issues. I'm not a climate warrior. And there are areas of my life and practice which are in need of challenge. Heart attitudes that I should be changing. I suspect that for most of us that's going to be the same. So 
let's try and be ready to respond to challenge. And second caveat is an odd one. This stuff is not fundamental to salvation. Um, there's a trap I fall into when I'm preaching sometimes. I don't know if other people find this. But when I'm preparing sermons, I, I get really stuck into passages. No matter how obscure it is or how little I knew about it beforehand, by the end, I see the stuff it deals with as being absolutely central to Christian life. There are two reasons for that. One is just that when you work hard at something, it becomes important to you. There's this optical illusion where your eyes are fixed, your treasure is. So the more you work at a passage and an idea and see connections, the more valuable it seems to you. But the second reason is to do with what the Bible's like. The Bible's teaching and message, this salvation story in this book, is amazingly cohesive. So pretty much wherever you look, as you drill down into the passage, you find yourself digging away at rich gospel themes, core truths that the Lord has graciously communicated. And so in almost any sermon, you should be coming face to face with ideas that are of central importance to Christianity. If you're just visiting, or if you're you're not sure where you stand with Christianity, let me challenge you from that. Read the Bible. Read it with a friend. Or read it with an open heart. I think you'll be amazed by how consistent it is. But because of that consistency, normally when a Christian teaches about a sure and certain hope, or a complete security in Jesus, or death and resurrection, or a a challenge to live in response to the gospel, or the call to witness to those around us, or, or promises made to all nations. When we speak about that kind of stuff, we do it with utter confidence. We're certain. Christ's teaching by the Spirit through Scripture is clear. Not so much tonight. At no point does Jesus break from his normal ministry and set out a clear theology of man's relation to the environment and responsibility in the face of climate change. Rather, we piece our theology of these issues together from a bunch of different passages which, like the one snipped out of Romans 8 mid-argument, make tangential references to creation. So please test my teaching tonight against scripture, even more than you would usually. I think there are useful and important ideas here, but we probably need to be careful about how we apply them. And we have to stay clear of any idea that being a Christian is about having strong green credentials. (coughs) That's simply not true. The gospel is just as open to the the gas-guzzling Texas oil millionaire as it is to a, a Greenpeace activist. And by the grace of God, whoever we are, either of those people, can be welcomed into God's presence and made clean and holy by cross and resurrection. And then, by the grace of God, either of those people and any of us will be changed and challenged by the Spirit as we live in response to the gospel. We'll be conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And no doubt our attitudes to creation around us will be part of that. But that's secondary. So two caveats. One, I'm not very good. And two, despite being important to modern life, these issues are not central. They're not the core Bible message. But they are important. Um, Especially so perhaps in East Oxford, somewhere like this. Green issues are at the forefront of so many people's thinking. If we ask punters on the street what's wrong with the world, Ideas about climate change, human irresponsibility, our destruction of the environment, those will be high on the agenda. If we ask about what a good life looks like, or what a good nation looks like, again, ideas about care for our environment, renewable energy, sustainable living, those will be up there near the top of the list. Who's got 1 Peter 2, verse 12? Different is. Live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong, and they see your good deeds, and Lord by God, they visit us. Thank you. 
that this stuff is going to fit into that, live such good lives. Along with every other part of our lives, Christian attitudes to environmentalism are examined. So on the big scale, we've seen recently that a statement from the Pope about climate change and human responsibility (coughs) causes political waves, real upsets. Newspapers scrutinise church assets and investments. They measure those against doctrines and statements of faith, and they highlight hypocrisy. More immediately to us, our colleagues and our friends and our neighbours and family, they will look at us and our attitudes to recycling or air miles or carbon footprints or food waste, those will form part of their judgment about whether we are virtuous or not. It will then become tangled up with their assessment of the gospel in us. So, just from an evangelistic point of view, we need to think through what virtue looks like. But also, I think that if we're going to be able to worship God well, if we're going to know what he's like, if we're going to praise him and understand his ways, then we need to think through not just how we fit into an up-down relationship with him, but how we fit into the creation that he's put around us. Because seeing that relationship more clearly will teach us and help us to understand how we are and he is and those linked together. I suspect that when we don't deliberately think it through, we, most of us, probably fall onto a spectrum between two unhelpful uh, stances. Um, I stole these from Francis Schaeffer. He, he describes them uh, as pantheism and pragmatism. I quite like that because they both begin with P. Um, you're welcome to use your own words. Um, I, I suspect we'll tend to gravitate somewhere along a spectrum like that. Christian pragmatism might look something like this. It, it might say, well, God made the world... He put us in it to live. He gave us dominion over it. More of that later. It's for us so we can use it. Ultimately, though, Jesus is coming back. This earth is going to be wound up and recreated. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So what matters now isn't the state of the earth. It's the gospel. Let's live and serve the gospel. Let's only worry about the environmental stuff as a side issue. For example, if it impacts social justice or where I need it to fit in with certain groups, as as like Paul says, I'm becoming all things to all men. It's quite an attractive stance. I, I think not least because it frees us up from responsibility. It means we don't need to be really worried about intractable, difficult issues, or, or we don't need to um, make big life changes. I, th- I think I would tend to gravitate towards that. I don't know about you. The other extreme, a sort of Christianized pantheism, is maybe more poetically attractive. Those of you with more soul than a physics teacher might, might head that way. A true pantheism says that, that God's not a distinct person or entity, but rather is present in the universe or nature, um, permeating everything. A, a Christianized take on that would, would maybe tend to emphasize that, that God created the whole world, not just me. Humans are, are, are just part of a created order, not in essence any more important than trees or animals, and intended to function within creation, to be provided for within it. It's a sort of romantic idea, and the sort of romantic conclusion might be that if only we would live in balance with creation, then things would be better. Balance can be restored. The ecosystems would would slip back into a happy order. As it stands, well, maybe the disorder and chaos of, say, deforestation or oceanic pollution or mass extinctions, maybe those might be presented as just direct consequences of human sin. 
Uh, and so Christians wanting to respond to the gospel by living a virtuous life should espouse environmental concerns and be bringing our cultures back into line with God's created world, trying to fit mankind back into nature. It's much beloved of Hollywood screenwriters because the, the ongoing failure to do that could result in nature correcting itself, a sort of mini Noah's flood style form of God's judgment. As changed climate or disease or falling food production brings terrible times for humanity. Now, I don't know if either of those resonate with you. I, I hope I'm not just setting up straw men to knock down. I think I would certainly tend to find myself somewhere between those at different times in my life. If we put ourselves down one end, green issues are very high on our agenda. Down the other, maybe we only care about them when we have to. Attractive though either of them might be, I don't feel they fit with the picture in the Bible. So firstly, pantheism, the Christianized pantheist direction. It, it looks nice in the way that it echoes the sensibilities of some green movements or of Eastern religions. It's got this sort of romantic idea of Mother Earth and God's perfect, loved, lasting creation. I have to say that to a, to a scientist, it, it feels naive. It, the idea of benevolent nature is unrealistic. Nature can be wildly destructive. The idea that it, it, it desires balance or somehow self-regulates doesn't quite fit. Now, undoubtedly, right now, due to human activity, it's largely accepted, we're living through a mass extinction a time of very, very rapid change of the environment. And scientific consensus is that, yes, that's our fault. But we know that there have been others, many other mass extinctions, before humans came along. We know that over the course of natural history, Earth's climate swings between very different conditions. Nature doesn't seek a balance. And certainly not for the benefit of a, a small group of species. Nature, natural systems, see constant change and development with occasional patches of equilibrium. And sometimes that favours a species and sometimes it doesn't. Left to themselves, natural systems just don't operate in harmony. We see that when we foolishly introduce species from one context to another. Think of Japanese knotweed despoiling English gardens or, or rabbits rampaging across Australia. But it happens naturally too. The moment that an organism cracks into an ecological niche, it breeds and expands and it fills that to the detriment of other creatures. There is no inherent order and balance to natural systems. They develop blindly to suit the circumstances. And where balance is arrived at, it, it's by accident. It, it's not necessary, it, it's not long-lasting. Thinking of mankind within this uh, as, as just a part that should fit into nature doesn't quite make sense either. It, it's simply true that we are manifestly different to other parts of nature. Even if only because we have this capacity for self-awareness to be able to chart our destruction and maybe change our course. But beyond my scientific frustration, this pantheistic kind of idea doesn't fit with Christian teaching. It doesn't fit with the Bible. So the most obvious place to look for that is Genesis 1 and 2. Who's got Genesis 1? Awesome. And then Genesis 2 straight after. Kitty, thank you very much. Go for it, Kitty. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, 
and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth, and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Thank you. So, famously in Genesis, we have this idea that humans are created as special, separate in some sense from the rest of creation. And to outside eyes, it would be really easy to just sneer at this as primitive, self-justifying arrogance. Um, these things are picked up, though, and developed through the rest of the Bible story. They fit intimately with the gospel message. God was pleased with the rest of creation. It was good. But add in humans, and it's very good. Why? Well, as, as Christians understand it, from Genesis 1.27, it's because humans are in some sense an image of God. What does that mean? Probably a bunch of things. So it's probably about consciousness and decision-making and self-awareness that the rest of creation doesn't seem to have that. I think it's probably about relationships. Humans are relational, and that lets us imitate the relationships between God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it lets us live in relationship with God as well as with our surroundings. And somehow that particularly glorifies God. That's all pretty special, but in Genesis, most obviously... The thing that makes humans special is the role they're given. The Bible just doesn't speak of mankind as part of a machine, subject to nature, intended to fill a niche. It describes human beings in Genesis 1.26 as intended to rule, or to have dominion. In verse 28, to, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Something there is what God sees as very good. In the Bible's framework, humans aren't just another part. They're set aside for a specific role. And more than that, nature isn't described as being sufficient. It's not something that just ticks along in equilibrium until we mess it up. Rather, in Genesis 2, there's something missing until Adam and Eve come along. There's something lacking in the world at first because there was no one to work the ground. So God takes man. He, he puts him not in the wilderness, but in a garden to work it, to take care of it, to give things names and, and somehow then to rule the earth. Of course, that, that goes wrong at the fall in Genesis 3. As a consequence of sin, the, the fruitful work becomes painful toil instead. The ground is less compliant, but it's not at all clear that it's just specific sins causing environmental responses. The flood in Genesis 6 it is never presented as some kind of Gaia-esque natural response to humanity. Rather, it's specific judgment by God on a wicked generation. 
And indeed, at the end of Genesis 8, God promises never again will he curse the ground like that. As we heard earlier in Romans 8, the whole of creation is subject to frustration. It's groaning, it's in childbirth, and that is a consequence of sin and judgment. But the aim isn't in the pantheistic kind of sense, to bring us back into line with nature. We're not meant to live in fear of Gaia. And Romans 8, the aim is for the children of God to be revealed. For God's gospel plan to come to fruition. And ultimately, we get a glimpse of that in Revelation 22. Don't worry about looking it up now. It's glorious. As the promised heaven is described, and strikingly, what is it? It's a garden as well as a city. Eden is restored. And on the main street, there's water and there are trees which bear managed crops 12 times a year for the good of God's people. Humanity's role is not just to fit into nature and not cause waves. Nature is not meant to rule itself. We have a purpose there. And so if Christians are going to engage in environmental issues, it's not just going to be with an eye to romantically preserving the earth, but rather to managing it under God's rule. The, The pantheistic approach just doesn't fit. That said, nor does the pragmatist approach. Um, A lot of that one stems from Genesis 1 again. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, or so that they may have dominion over the rest of creation. And off the back of that, there's a tradition, perhaps especially in some Western evangelical circles, to consider the earth as just given to man. It's a resource for us to use, essentially, as we will. So um, many Christians will see nothing particularly wrong in using up oil reserves or massive deforestation or heavy-handed fishing and farming or, or destructive mining practices. It might be argued that it's our God-given right to make use of and to consume those resources. Actually, There's no need to worry about the long game because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We shouldn't try for a utopia now. It's subject to sin and frustration, this earth. We don't need to think about trying to make it perfect. That can't happen until God returns. They might argue that our, our energy would be better focused on spreading the gospel or on raising funds to generously give and spread the gospel. Not on faffing around with uncertain environmental science. There's some merit to that. Of course, a a slightly longer-term pragmatic approach might pay more careful attention to the state of the environment. If it's ours to do with as we please, we'd quite like to keep living in it. Um, Maybe pragmatically, then, we, we should support green concerns, but... The motive there will always be looking after what's ours, looking after ourselves, making sure that we're provided for economically with food and with useful resources. Now again, there's some merit to those arguments. Practically speaking, it would be entirely sensible uh, and a good motivation to look after the environment. It's certainly better than blowing all our resources at once. Spiritually speaking, well, yes, the gospel and and the spread of the gospel will make far bigger changes in people's lives than any recycling scheme. But it feels cold. It's missing something. There's not much joy in God's creation. There's not much purpose or value in, in the incredible diversity and variety of it. There's not much respect or reverence paid to the creator. If anything, it feels like seeing the world in these pragmatic terms leads us towards some quite dodgy waters. Um, If if we split the less valuable matter now from the more valuable spiritual future, we 
we drift gently towards a sort of body-soul divide, which is at the root of plenty of heresies. And it just doesn't stack up with the attitude of the Bible towards creation now. So it's going to be unhealthy for us in our spiritual growth, in the way that we see God in us. There are plenty of references we could use here. Um, Here's a few. Psalm 24 verse 1 has, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And verse 2, For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So whatever the nature of man's dominion is, it, it doesn't make the earth's mind to do with as I will. It's the Lord's. He created it. And that was true from before the fall. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. Creation is more than just a resource for me to guzzle up. It's a testament to God's glory. It's something I'm meant to pay attention to and respond to. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 fits in here as well. There, Israel are told not to imagine it's them that makes themselves rich, but to remember it's God who gives them the means to produce wealth. The earth is God's, not ours. Whatever our our rule is, whatever our dominion means, it doesn't give us the authority to just use earth up. God values and loves his creation. He values it enough that he became flesh as Jesus within creation. And after the cross, Jesus is resurrected as an eating, drinking, touchable, physical body within creation before he ascends. This world matters to God. Surely we have to echo that. So a a purely pragmatic, selfish approach, it it doesn't fit. Um, Swift drink of water. My throat is dry because I've been very negative for far too long. Um, I I think I've laid some groundwork in there, I hope so. Um, Let me then suggest two more useful frameworks just to consider how and should we engage with environmental issues. Why do they matter to us? Um, The first useful framework is to consider the role of mankind within creation. And I think the big question here is, is back in Genesis, what does it mean to look like the image of God? What does it look like then to have rule or dominion What does it look like to have that and to honour God at the same time? Why has God given us this role? Do we even have it? I don't know if you've ever tested the extent of your dominion over nature. (laughs) Have you commanded the weather to change? The tide to stay down? Yeah, some nods, okay. Um, Probably didn't go too well. I love the last few chapters of Job. Um, It's a great book. It's a lot of hard work for the reader. I won't claim to have it down pat. But short version, after loads of grumbling, God speaks up. And essentially for four chapters, he opens up a can of whoopers. And he does it, to a teacher, this is beautiful. He does it by just asking questions. It's great. So he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who limits the seas? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Do you know where I store the weather? Do you know where the wild animals give birth? Do you provide their food? Do you even know where they go? Who's got Job 38, 31, 33? Thank you. Um, can you bind the chains of the Canadians? Can you loosen warrior's belts? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Thank you. And to a physicist, that's great. Yeah. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Not yet. No. Can you lead out the stars and control 
uh, constellations? No, no. Job and his advisors, they're, they're silenced by this. Can, can they set up God's dominion over the earth? No. Fair play, wouldn't we be silenced too? What can I say? In what way can my puny control over the environment be said to be a rule or dominion? How could it even approach being an image of God? Unsurprisingly, the answer comes in the New Testament. We look ahead to Jesus. Um, He's got Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I think I gave it to someone. Maybe not. Could someone look up Colossians 1, 15 to 20 for me then? It's a race. Ah, good man. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Thank you. Boom. Jesus is the perfect, absolute image of God. In a way that Adam and Eve couldn't fully be. Christians are are images of God because they are Jesus-shaped. To be a disciple is to imitate him. The work of the Holy Spirit is to conform us to that image. And amazingly, The promise of communion and of resurrection is that we are united as the church. We are genuinely united as his body. He brings his people into unity with him who is the fullness of God. And that does something remarkable in our relationship with our world. It puts us with Jesus as a sort of intermediary between God and creation. Who's got Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5? Thank you. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. Thank you. I, I love Psalm 8. It's amazing. There is this infinite creator God and there is the finite created creation and they are separate. What is man made from dust that God would be mindful of him? All through the Old Testament there's this huge problem. There's this gulf between us and God. Who is like him? How can we hope to live in relationship with him? And then in the New Testament, one of the most staggering claims is that in Jesus, mankind is lifted up and crowned and unified with divinity, adopted into his family. And so with Jesus, that puts humankind as a sort of bridge between the creation and God, an almost Hebrewsy priest kind of role. Our Genesis 1 dominion or rule over creation is in the sense that we're united with Christ. He has had everything put under his feet. And so it's ours to use in a sense, but not in that selfish, get what we can from a way that we've been so good at. Now, the actual ownership is God's. This is where the idea of stewardship gets bandied around quite a lot. Um, The idea that we're managing creation for God to return to him or be called to account for. I'm not completely convinced that fits here quite. 
as, as far as I can see, the, the Bible doesn't use stewardship in that context. But rather I think that because Christians are united with Christ, then when we look at creation, we can try to do that through Christ-like eyes. We can try to respond to it as he would, and we can try to use it for his purposes. So we work the land because that's how the Lord has chosen to provide food and resources for his people. And we manage the land to that end, to bring it to fruitfulness, to fullness, for the glory of God. Almost like a priest tending his people. That there's nothing wrong with getting food from earth, or in mining precious resources and putting the earth to use to enrich our lives. The earth is given to mankind and to Jesus for those purposes. And so the generous creator, the giver, God, is better glorified as we put his creation to work. If we take created resources and build precious or useful things with them, that glorifies our God. But just as the prodigal son was foolish when he went and squandered his inheritance and threw it all away, we don't have a mandate to foolishly squander ours, to, to rapaciously consume and destroy. How could we if we looked at the earth with Christ-like eyes? Surely he loves his creation. He holds it together. It has its being in him. It's a, it's a treasure to be tended so there is no way that we can support vast deforestation for the sake of a quick buck. It, it leaves the land a wreck behind. There, there's no way we can support lifestyles that carelessly churn out pollutants that in both blatant and subtle ways trash our surroundings. And, and surely as we're made aware of these problems, we have to be thinking, how can I change? both in my individual lifestyle and by supporting calls for change on a wider scale. If we're images of God by being united in Christ, then our role is to manage, to rule the world in such a way that it is fruitful for God, in such a way that his precious creation is honoured and gives praise to him. And that means we should tend the world carefully in terms of natural resources, but it also gives us a mandate to care for the beauty of the world. It gives us a mandate for conservation, for conservation's sake, rather than just pragmatism. Here's what one non-Christian writer said as he was bitterly, bitterly criticising what he saw as um, Christian teaching that had given what rise to the 20th century Western attitudes, which were despoiling nature. And in this case, it led to the massive decline in numbers of whales. He said that the death of these great creatures will leave a void in God's creation and in the imagination of men for generations to come. I, I like that phrase, and the, leave a void in the imagination of men for generations to come. What do you think Jesus does when he surveys the extent and detail and wonder of his creation? I think he gives praise and glory to the Father. And surely Christians must too. Surely we should see it and be ready for our imaginations to be sparked into action. How great is our God? We'll probably finish by singing that in a while. Surely we, we can't then treat with contempt what that God has made. We, we can't stand idly by as, as glorious creatures are driven to extinction, as wonderful oceans and forests are, are reduced to infertility. Surely we've got to give voice in those contexts, to search for, for alternatives at the least as God's creation is pillaged. Perhaps that's one useful framework for us to use as we consider these green issues. 
To be made in the image of God is, is to be set with Christ as intermediaries between him and creation. And that has to compel us to find great worth in the natural world. And to praise God for it and to engage deeply with environmental campaigns and green issues as a result. It'll leave us with difficult problems, of course. I don't know how we weigh the needs of a population against the, the value of some marshland. I don't know. But we can attempt to manage those resources sensitively with Christ-like attitudes. More briefly, um, you'll be glad to know, a, a second framework, thinking about how and whether to engage in green issues. Who's got Isaiah 42? Servant song. Is there? Yes. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, islands will, be, will, will put their hope. This is what the Lord, God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out all the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes of the blind, free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who are set in darkness. I am the Lord, and that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another, or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they, before they spring to being, I announce unto you. Thank you. Great song in Isaiah, which seems to point forward to Jesus. And it shows us the heart of God. Our God has a heart for the weak and for captives and for the blind and for the outcasts and bruised reeds and smouldering wicks. And his heart and his calling is not just for the insiders, for the, the church as it stands or the rich Western church. It, it's for the outsiders as well, for the rest of the world. In Isaiah, his, his chosen servant will be a light for the world, for the Gentiles, for those living in darkness. And he has a passion for justice. And that almost stands on its own. Because the thing about green issues is that almost without exception, the people who suffer the most and who feel the heaviest consequences of pollution or overfishing or deforestation or, or changing climates are the poor and the vulnerable. Very rarely are the greatest consequences borne by those who profit most. So when over a few months a fleet of fishing trawlers scours clean a seabed, destroying the local ecosystem. They can go and fish elsewhere and the local populace can't. And when wealthy Western nations burn through millions of years of fossil reserves in two centuries, it's the poorest of the world who are hit most severely, left behind in development, and then hit by changing weather systems or rising water levels. And it's the poorest as well who are least equipped to use other resources to mitigate the consequences. Simply as a matter of justice, we're called to care about these issues. Two last Bible references, I'll read them. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Or from the New Testament, uh, 1 John 3, verse 16 to 18, says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, now John there is talking about the absolute requirement that we love and care for other Christians. But there are plenty of believers among those who suffer the consequence of human and, and our abuse of the climate. And for the rest, well, the, the general biblical command to uphold justice, to care for the poor, holds. So many green issues are, are inseparable from ideas of social justice. And so they share that context and that framework and that compulsion of believing Christians serving the gospel by loving the weak and the poor and therefore modelling and sharing Christ's character. So that's my attempt to give an idea of a couple of reasons that I think Christians have a requirement to respond to the gospel by having a concern for the environment and through that for the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, we can live that out in a thousand ways, of course, from recycling to cutting down our food miles or, or flying less or through giving money generously to environmental charities or supporting organisations and lobbying in Parliament. And, and we won't get it right. We're sinful, or in my case, just incompetent as well. And, and we make mistakes. And society around us is fallen. It, it's a bit bust. And we won't get it right because in the Romans 8 sense, creation is groaning and straining in anticipation, but it's like in childbirth. that The problems will get resolved gloriously but only when God's gospel plan for the world finally comes to fruition, when Jesus returns. But until then, we're not absolved of the responsibility to try to love and honour God's creation, or to try to love the needy. Thanks for listening patiently. Um, on the back of that handout, there, there are some discussion questions. You, you can use with people on your table if you like. You don't have to use them in any order or use them at all. Um, but here's some time for you to respond and chat and discuss. And in a while, we'll pull it back together. We'll maybe have some feedback and we will sing and we will pray. Thank you.